The years of which I have spoken to you, when I pursued the inner images, were the most important time of my life. Everything else is to be derived from this. It began at that time, and the later details hardly matter anymore. My entire life consisted in elaborating what had burst forth from the unconscious, and flooded me like an enigmatic stream and threatened to break me. That was the stuff and material for more than only one life. Everything later was merely the outer classification, the scientific elaboration, and the integration into life. But the numinous beginning, which contained everything, was then. Hey y'all, if you were listening to last week's story hour, we went through chapters 1 through 4 of the Red Book. This week we're going to continue reading, and we will dive into the depths of hell and the sticks, the metaphorical underworlds, the world where Carl Jung himself went in his own visions and images, and how he found his way out. It's a truly beautiful excerpt out of this book. This is a reading out of the Red Book, Liber Novus, a reader's edition by Carl Jung, edited and with an introduction by Sanu Shamdasani, translated by Mark Kybers, John Peck, and Sanu Shamdasani, published by the heirs of C.G. Jung, one of the volumes of the Filament series, sponsored by the Filament Foundation. I hope you guys enjoy. Chapter 5, Descent into Hell in the Future. In the following night, the air was filled with many voices. A loud voice called, I am falling. Others cried out, confused and excited during this. Where to? What do you want? Should I entrust myself to this confusion? I shuddered. It is a dreadful deep. Do you want me to leave myself to chance? To the madness of my own darkness? Whither? Whither? You fall, and I want to fall with you, whoever you are. The spirit of the depths opened my eyes, and I caught a glimpse of the inner things, the world of my soul, the many formed and changing. I see a gray rock face along which I sink into great depths. I stand in black dirt up to my ankles in a dark cave. Shadows sweep over me. I am seized by fear, but I know I must go in. I crawl through a narrow crack in the rock and reach an inner cave whose bottom is covered with black water. But beyond this, I catch a glimpse of a luminous red stone which I must reach. I wade through the muddy water. The cave is full of the frightful noise of shrieking voices. I take the stone. It covers a dark opening in the rock. I hold the stone in my hands, peering around inquiringly. I do not want to listen to the voices. They keep me away, but I want to know. Here something wants to be uttered. I place my ear to the opening. I hear the flow of underground waters. I see the bloody head of a man on the dark stream. Someone wounded. Someone slain floats there. I take in this image for a long time, shuddering. I see a large black scarab floating past on the dark stream. In the deepest reach of the stream shines a red sun, radiating through the dark water. There, I see. And a terror seizes me. Small serpents in the dark rock walls, striving toward the depths, where the sun shines. A thousand serpents crowd around, veiling the sun. Deep night falls. A red stream of blood, thick red blood, springs up, surging for a long time, then ebbing. I am seized by fear. What did I see? Heal the wounds that doubt inflicts on me, my soul. That too is to be overcome, so that I can recognize your supreme meaning. How far everything away is, and how I have turned back. My spirit is a spirit of torment. It tears asunder my contemplation. It would dismantle everything and rip it apart. I am still a victim of my thinking. When can I order my thinking to be quiet, so that my thoughts, those unruly hounds, will crawl to my feet? How can I ever hope to hear your voice louder, to see your face clearer, when all my thoughts howl? I am stunned, but I want to be stunned, since I have sworn to you, my soul, to trust you even if you lead me through madness. How shall I ever walk under your sun if I do not drink the bitter drought of slumber to the lees? Help me so that I do not choke on my own knowledge. The fullness of my knowledge threatens to fall in on me. My knowledge has a thousand voices, an army roaring like lions. 
The air trembles when they speak, and I am their defenseless sacrifice. Keep it far from me, science that clever knower, that bad prison master who binds the soul and imprisons it in a lightless cell. But above all, protect me from the serpent of judgment, which only appears to be a healing serpent, yet in your depths is infernal poison and agonizing death. I want to go down cleansed into your depths with white garments and not rush in like some thief, seizing whatever I can and fleeing breathlessly. Let me persist in divine astonishment so that I am ready to behold your wonders. Let me lay my head on a stone before your door so that I am prepared to receive your light. When the desert begins to bloom, it brings forth strange plants. You will consider yourself mad, and in a certain sense, you will in fact be mad. To the extent that the Christianity of this time lacks madness, it lacks divine life. Take note of what the ancients taught us in images. Madness is divine. But because the ancients lived this image concretely in events, it became a deception for us, since we became masters of the reality of the world. It is an unquestionable. If you enter into the world of the soul, you are like a madman, and a doctor would consider you to be sick. What I say here can be seen as sickness, but no one can see it as sickness more than I do. This is how I overcame madness. If you do not know what divine madness is, suspend judgment and wait for the fruits. But I know that there is divine madness, which is nothing other than the overpowering of the spirit of this time through the spirit of the depths. Speak then of sick delusion when the spirit of the depths can no longer stay down and forces a man to speak in tongues instead of in human speech, and makes him believe that he himself is the spirit of the depths. But also speak of sick delusion when the spirit of this time does not leave a man and forces him to see only the surface, to deny the spirit of the depths, and to take himself for the spirit of the times. The spirit of the times is ungodly. The spirit of the depths is ungodly. Balance is godly. Because I was caught up in the spirit of this time, precisely what happened to me on this night had to happen to me, namely that the spirit of the depths erupted with force and swept away the spirit of this time with a powerful wave. But the spirit of the depths had gained this power because I had spoken to my soul during 25 nights in the desert and I had given her all my love and submission. But during the 25 days, I gave all my love and submission to things, to men, and to the thoughts of this time. I went into the desert only at night. Thus can you differentiate sick and divine delusion. Whoever does the one and does without the other, you may call sick, since he is out of balance. But who can withstand fear when the divine intoxication and madness comes to him? Love, soul, and God are beautiful and terrible. The ancients brought over some of the beauty of God into the world. And this world became so beautiful that it appeared to the spirit of the time to be fulfillment and better than the bosom of the Godhead. The frightful and cruelty of the world lay under wraps and in the depths of our hearts. If the spirit of the depths seizes you, you will feel the cruelty and cry out in torment. The spirit of the depths is pregnant with iron, fire, and death. You are right to fear the spirit of the depths, as he is full of horror. You see in these days what the spirit of the depths bore. You did not believe it, but you would have known it if you had taken counsel with your fear. Blood shone at me from the red light of the crystal, and when I picked it up to discover its mystery, there lay the horror uncovered before me. In the depths of what is to come lay murder, the blonde hero slain. The black beetle is the death that is necessary for renewal. And so thereafter, a new sun glowed, the sun of the depths, full of riddles, a sun of the night. And as the rising sun of spring quickens the dead earth, so the sun of the depths quickened the dead, and thus began the terrible struggle between light and darkness. Out of that burst the powerful and ever unvanquished source of blood. This was what was to come, which you now experience in your life, and it is even more than that. Depths and surface should mix so that new life can develop. Yet the new life does not develop outside of us, but within us, 
What happens outside us in these days is the image that the peoples live in events, to bequeath this image immemorially to far-off times so that they might learn from it in their own way, just as we learn from the images that the ancients had lived before us in events. Life does not come from events, but from us. Everything that happens outside has already been. Therefore, whoever considers the event from outside always sees only that it already was and that it is always the same. But whoever looks from inside knows that everything is new. The events that happen are always the same, but the creative depths of man are not always the same. Events signify nothing. They signify only in us. We create the meaning of events. The meaning is and always was artificial. We make it. Because of this, we seek in ourselves the meaning of events, so that the way of what is to come becomes apparent and our life can flow again. That which you need comes from yourself, namely the meaning of the event. The meaning of the events is not their particular meaning. This meaning exists in learned books. Events have no meaning. The meaning of events is the way of salvation that you create. The meaning of events comes from the possibility of life in this world that you create. It is the mastery of this world and the assertion of your soul in this world. This meaning of events is the supreme meaning that is not in events and not in the soul, but is the God standing between events and the soul, the mediator of life, the way, the bridge, and the going across. I would not have been able to see what was to come if I could not have seen it in myself. Therefore, I take part in that murder. The sun of the depths also shines in me after the murder has been accomplished. The thousand serpents that want to devour the sun are also in me. I myself am a murderer and murdered, sacrificer and sacrificed. The upwelling blood streams out of me. You all have a share in the murder. In you the reborn one will come to be, and the sun of the depths will rise, and a thousand serpents will develop from your dead matter and fall in the sun to choke it. Your blood will stream forth. The peoples demonstrate this at the present time in unforgettable acts that will be written with blood in unforgettable books for eternal memory. But I ask you, when do men fall on their brothers with mighty weapons and bloody acts? They do such if they do not know that their brother is themselves. They themselves are sacrificers, but they mutually do the service of sacrifice. They must all sacrifice each other, since the time has not yet come when man puts the bloody knife into himself in order to sacrifice the one he kills in his brother. But whom do people kill? They kill the noble, the brave, the heroes. They take aim at these and do not know that with these they mean themselves. They should sacrifice the hero in themselves, and because they do not know this, they kill their courageous brother. The time is still not ripe, but through this blood sacrifice it should ripen. So long as it is possible to murder the brother instead of oneself, the time is not ripe. Frightful things must happen until men grow ripe, but anything else will not ripen humanity. Hence all this that takes place in these days must also be, so that the renewal can come, since the source of blood that follows the shrouding of the sun is also the source of new life. As the fate of the peoples is represented to you in events, so will it happen in your heart. If the hero in you is slain, then the sun of the depths rises in you, glowing from afar and from a dreadful place. But all the same, everything that up till now seemed to be dead in you will come to life and will change into poisonous serpents that will cover the sun and you will fall into night in confusion. Your blood also will stream from many wounds in this frightful struggle. Your shock and doubt will be great, but from such torment the new life will be born. Birth is blood and torment. Your darkness, which you did not suspect since it was dead, will come to life and you will feel the crush of total evil and the conflicts of life that still now lie buried in the matter of your body. But the serpents are dreadful evil thoughts and feelings. You thought you knew that, Abyss? Oh, you clever people. It is another thing to experience it. Everything will happen to you. Think of all the frightful and devilish things that men have inflicted on their brothers. That should happen to you in your heart. Suffer it yourself through your own hands. 
And know that it is your own heinous and devilish hand that inflicts the sufferings on you, but not your brother, who wrestles with his own devils. I would like you to see what the murdered hero means. Those nameless men who in our day have murdered a prince are blind prophets who demonstrate in events what then is valid only for the soul. Through the murder of princes, we will learn that the prince in us, the hero, is threatened. Whether this should be seen as a good or bad sign need not concern us. What is awful today is good in a hundred years, and in two hundred years is bad again. But we must recognize what is happening. There are nameless ones in you who threaten your prince, the hereditary ruler. But our ruler is the spirit of this time, which rules and leads in us all. It is the general spirit in which we think and act today. He is a frightful power, since he has brought immeasurable good to this world and fascinated men with unbelievable pleasure. He is bejeweled with the most beautiful heroic virtue and wants to drive men up to the brightest solar heights in everlasting ascent. The hero wants to open up everything he can, but the nameless spirit of the depths evokes everything that man cannot. Incapacity prevents further ascent. Greater height requires greater virtue. We do not possess it. We must first create it by learning to live with our incapacity. We must give it life, for how else shall it develop into ability? We cannot slay our incapacity and rise above it, but that is precisely what we wanted. Incapacity will overcome us and demand its share of life. Our ability will desert us, and we will believe, in the sense of the spirit of this time, that it is a loss. Yet it is no loss but a gain, not for outer trappings, however, but for inner capability. The one who lives to learn with his incapacity has learned a great deal. This will lead us to the valuation of the smallest things, and to wise limitation, which the greater heights demand. If all heroism is erased, we fall back into the misery of humanity, and into even worse. Our foundations will be caught up in excitement, since our highest tension, which concerns what lies outside us, will stir them up. We will fall into the cesspool of our underworld, among the rubble of all the centuries in us. The heroic in you is the fact that you are ruled by the thought that this or that is good, that this or that performance is indispensable, this or that cause is objectionable, this or that goal must be attained in headlong striving work, this or that pleasure should be ruthlessly repressed at all cost. Consequently, you sin against incapacity, but incapacity exists. No one should deny it, find fault with it, or shout it down. Chapter 6. Splitting of the Spirit But on the fourth night I cried. To journey to hell means to become hell oneself. It is all frightfully muddled and interwoven. On this desert path there is not just glowing sand, but also horrible, tangled, invisible beings who live in the desert. I didn't know this. The way is only apparently clear. The desert is only apparently empty. It seems inhabited by magical beings who murderously attach themselves to me and demonically change my form. I have evidently taken on a completely monstrous form in which I can no longer recognize myself. It seems to me that I have become a monstrous animal form for which I have exchanged my humanity. This way is surrounded by hellish magic. Invisible nooses have been thrown over me and ensnare me. But the spirit of the depths approached me and said, Climb down into your depths. Sink. But I was indignant at him and said, How can I sink? I am unable to do this myself. Then the spirit spoke words to me that appeared ridiculous, and he said, Sit yourself down. Be calm. But I cried out indignantly. How frightful. It sounds like nonsense. Do you also demand this of me? You overthrew the mighty gods who mean most to us. My soul, where are you? Have I entrusted myself to a stupid animal? Do I stagger like a drunkard to the grave? Do I stammer stupidities like a lunatic? Is this your way, my soul? The blood boils in me and I would strangle you if I could seize you. You weave the thickest darknesses, and I am like a madman caught in your net. But I yearn. Teach me. But my soul spoke to me, saying, My path is light. Yet I indignantly answered, Do you call light what we men call the worst darkness? Do you call day night? To this my soul spoke a word that roused my anger. My light is not of this world. I cried. 
I know of no other world. The soul answered, Should it not exist because you know nothing of it? I, but our knowledge. But does our knowledge not also hold good for you? What is it going to be if not knowledge? Where is security? Where is solid ground? Where is light? Your darkness is not only darker than night, but bottomless as well. If it's not going to be knowledge, then perhaps it will do without speech and words too? My soul, no words. I, forgive me, perhaps I'm hard of hearing. Perhaps I misinterpret you. Perhaps I ensnare myself in self-deceit and monkey business. And I am a rascal grinning at myself in a mirror, a fool in my own madhouse. Perhaps you stumble over my folly, my soul. You delude yourself. You do not deceive me. Your words are lies to you, not me. I, but could I wallow in raging nonsense and hatch absurdity and perverse monotony? My soul, who gives you thoughts and words? Do you make them? Are you not my serf? A recipient who lies in my door and picks up my alms? And you dare think that what you devise and speak could be nonsense? Don't you know yet that it comes from me and belongs to me? So I cried full of anger. But then my indignation must also come from you. And in me you are indignant against yourself. But my soul then spoke the ambiguous words. That is civil war. I was afflicted with pain and rage, and I answered back. How painful, my soul, to hear you use hollow words. I feel sick. Comedy and drivel, but I yearn. I can also crawl through mud and the most despised banality. I can also eat dust. That is part of hell. I do not yield. I am defiant. You go on devising torments, spider-like monsters, ridiculous, hideous, frightful, theatrical spectacles. Come close. I am ready. Ready, my soul. You who are a devil, to wrestle with you too. You donned the mask of a god, and I worshipped you. Now you wear the mask of a devil, a frightful one, the mask of the banal, of eternal mediocrity. Only one favor. Give me a moment to step back and consider. Is the struggle with this mask worthwhile? Was the mask of God worth worshipping? I cannot do it. The lust for battle burns in my limbs. No, I cannot leave the battlefield defeated. I want to seize you, crush you, monkey, buffoon. Woe if the struggle is unequal. My hands grab at air, but your blows are also air, and I perceive trickery. I find myself again on the desert path. It was a desert vision, a vision of the solitary who has wandered down long roads. There lurks invisible robbers and assassins and shooters of poison darts. Suppose the murderous arrow is sticking in my heart? As the first vision had predicted to me, the assassin appeared from the depths and came to me just as in the fate of the peoples of this time, a nameless one appeared and leveled the murder weapon at the prince. I felt myself transformed into a rapacious beast. My heart glowered in rage against the high and beloved, against my prince and the hero, just as the nameless one of the people, driven by greed for murder, lunged at his dear prince. Because I carried the murder in me, I foresaw it. Because I carried the war in me, I foresaw it. I felt betrayed and lied to by my king. Why did I feel this way? He was not as I had wished him to be. He was other than I expected. He should be the king in my sense, not in his sense. He should be what I called ideal. My soul appeared to me hollow, tasteless, and meaningless, but in reality what I thought of her was valid for my ideal. It was a vision of the desert. I struggled with mirror images of myself. It was civil war in me. I myself was the murderer and the murdered. The deadly arrow was stuck in my heart, and I did not know what I meant. My thoughts were murder and the fear of death, which spreads like poison everywhere in my body. And thus was the fate of the people. The murder of one was the poisonous arrow that flew into the hearts of men and kindled the fiercest war. This murder is the indignation of incapacity against will, a Judas betrayal that one would like someone else to have committed. We are still seeking the goat that should bear our sin. Everything that becomes too old becomes evil. The same is true of your highest. Learn from the suffering of the crucified God that one can also betray and crucify a God. 
namely the God of the old year. If a God ceases being the way of life, he must fall secretly. The God becomes sick if he oversteps the height of the zenith. That is why the spirit of the depths took me when the spirit of this time had led me to the summit. Chapter 7. Murderer of the Hero On the following night, however, I had a vision. I was with a youth in high mountains. It was before daybreak. The eastern sky was already light. Then Siegfried's horn resounded over the mountains with a jubilant sound. We knew that our mortal enemy was coming. We were armed and lurked beside a narrow rocky path to murder him. Then we saw him coming high across the mountains on a chariot made of the bones of the dead. He drove boldly and magnificently over the steep rocks and arrived at the narrow path where we waited in hiding. As he came around the turn ahead of us, we fired at the same time, and he fell slain. Thereupon I turned to flee, and a terrible rain swept down. But after this, I went through a torment unto death, and I felt certain that I must kill myself, if I could not solve the riddle of the murder of the hero. Then the spirit of the depths came to me and spoke these words, The highest truth is one and the same with the absurd. This statement saved me, and like rain after a long hot spell, it swept away everything in me which was too highly tensed. Then I had a second vision. I saw a merry garden, in which forms walked clad in white silk, all covered in colored light, some reddish, the others bluish and greenish. I know, I have stridden across the depths. Through guilt I have become a newborn. We also live in our dreams. We do not only live by the day. Sometimes we accomplish our greatest deeds in dreams. In that night my life was threatened since I had to kill my lord and god. Not in single combat, since who among mortals could kill a god in a duel? You can reach your god only as an assassin, if you want to overcome him. But this is the bitterest for mortal men. Our gods want to be overcome, since they require renewal. If men kill their princes, they do so because they cannot kill their gods, and because they do not know that they should kill their gods in themselves. If the god grows old, he becomes shadow, nonsense, and he goes down. The greatest truth becomes the greatest lie. The brightest day becomes darkest night. As day requires night, and night requires day, so meaning requires absurdity, and absurdity requires meaning. Day does not exist through itself. Night does not exist through itself. The reality that exists through itself is day and night, so the reality is meaning and absurdity. Noon is a moment, midnight is a moment, morning comes from night, evening turns into night, but evening comes from the day and morning turns into day. So meaning is a moment and a transition from absurdity to absurdity, and absurdity only a moment and a transition from meaning to meaning. Oh, that Siegfried, blonde and blue-eyed, the German hero, had to fall by my hand, the most loyal and courageous. He had everything in himself that I treasured as the greater and more beautiful. He was my power, my boldness, my pride. I would have gone under in the same battle, and so only assassination was left to me. If I wanted to go on living, it could only be through trickery and cunning. Judge not. Think of the blonde savage of the German forests, who had to betray the hammer-brandishing thunder to the pale, near-eastern god who was nailed to the wood like a chicken marten. The courageous were overcome by a certain contempt for themselves, but their life force bade them to go on living, and they betrayed their beautiful wild gods, their holy trees, and their awe of the German forests. What does Siegfried mean for the Germans? What does it tell us that the Germans suffer Siegfried's death? That is why I almost preferred to kill myself in order to spare him, but I wanted to go on living with a new god. After death on the cross, Christ went into the underworld and became hell, so he took on the form of the Antichrist, the dragon. The image of the Antichrist, which has come down to us from the ancients, announces the new god, whose coming the ancients had foreseen. Gods are unavoidable. The more you flee from the god, the more surely you fall into his hand. The rain is the great stream of tears that will come over the peoples. The tearful flood of released tension after the constriction of death had encumbered the people with horrific force. It is the mourning of the dead in me, which precedes burial and rebirth. The rain is the fructifying of the earth. It begets the new wheat, the young, germinating god. Chapter 8. The Conception of the God 
On the second night thereafter, I spoke to my soul and said, This new world appears weak and artificial to me. Artificial is a bad word, but the mustard seed that grew into a tree, the word that was conceived in the womb of a virgin, became a god to whom the earth was subject. As I spoke thus, the spirit of the depth suddenly erupted. He filled me with intoxication and mist and spoke these words with a powerful voice. I have received your sprout, you who are to come. I have received it in the deepest need and lowliness. I covered it in shabby patchwork and bedded down on poor words. And mockery worshipped it, your child, your wondrous child, the child of one who is to come, who should announce the father, a fruit that is older than the tree on which it grew. In pain you will conceive, and joy is your birth. Fear is your herald, doubt stands to your right, disappointment to your left. We passed by in our ridiculousness and senselessness when we caught sight of you. Our eyes were blinded, and our knowledge fell silent when we received your radiance. You knew spark of an eternal fire, into which night were you born? You will wring truthful prayers from your believers, and they must speak of your glory in tongues that are atrocious to them. You will come over them in the hour of their disgrace, and will become known in them in what they hate, fear, and abhor. Your voice, the rarest pleasing sound, will be heard amid the stammerings of wretches, rejects, and those condemned as worthless. Your realm will be touched by the hands of those who also worship before the most profound lowliness, and whose longing drove them through the mud tide of evil. You will give your gifts to those who pray to you in terror and doubt, and your light will shine upon those whose knees must bend before you unwillingly and who are filled with resentment. Your life is with he who has overcome himself and who has disowned his self-overcoming. I also know that the salvation of mercy is given only to those who believe in the highest and faithlessly betray themselves for thirty pieces of silver. Those who will dirty their pure hands and cheat on their best knowledge against error and take their virtues from a murderer's grave are invited to your great banquet. The constellation of your birth is an ill and changing star. These, O child of what is to come, are the wonders that will bear testimony that you are a veritable God. When the prince had fallen, the spirit of the depths opened my vision and let me become aware of the birth of the new God. The divine child approached me out of the terrible ambiguity, the hateful beautiful, the evil good, the laughable serious, the sick healthy, the inhuman human, and the ungodly godly. I understood that the God whom we seek in the absolute was not to be found in absolute beauty, goodness, seriousness, elevation, humanity, or even in godliness. Once, the God was there. I understood that the new God would be in the relative. If the God is absolute beauty and goodness, how should he encompass the fullness of life, which is beautiful and hateful, good and evil, laughable and serious, human and inhuman? How can man live on the womb of the God if the Godhead himself attends only to one half of him? If we have risen near the heights of good and evil, then our badness and hatefulness lie in the most extreme torment. Man's torment is so great, and the air of the heights so weak, that he can hardly live any more. The good and the beautiful freeze to the ice of the absolute idea, and the bad and the hateful become mud puddles full of crazy life. Therefore, after his death, Christ had to journey to hell. Otherwise, the ascent to heaven would have become impossible for him. Christ first had to become his antichrist, his underworldly brother. No one knows what happened during the three days Christ was in hell. I have experienced it. The men of yore said that he had preached there to the deceased. What they say is true, but do you know how this happened? It was folly and monkey business, an atrocious hell's masquerade of the holiest mysteries. How else could Christ have saved his antichrist? Read the unknown books of the ancients, and you will learn much from them. Notice that Christ did not remain in hell, but rose to the heights and the beyond. Our conviction of the value of the good and beautiful has become strong and unshakable. That is why life can extend beyond this, and still fulfill everything that lay bound in yearning. But the bound and yearning is also the hateful and bad. Are you again indignant about the hateful and the bad? Through this you can recognize how great are their force and value for life. Do you think that it is dead in you? But this dead can also change into serpents. 
These serpents will extinguish the prince of your days. Do you see what beauty and joy came over men when the depths unleashed this greatest war? And yet it was a frightful beginning. If we do not have the depths, how can we have the heights? Yet you fear the depths, and do not want to confess that you are afraid of them. It is good, though, that you fear yourselves. Say it out loud that you are afraid of yourselves. It is wisdom to fear oneself. Only the heroes say that they are fearless, but you know what happens to the hero. With fear and trembling, look around yourselves with mistrust. Go thus into the depths, but do not do this alone. Two or more is greater security, since the depths are full of murder. Also secure yourselves the way of retreat. Go cautiously as if you were cowards, so that you preempt the soul murderers. The depths would like to devour you whole and choke you in mud. He who journeys to hell also becomes hell. Therefore do not forget from whence you come. The depths are stronger than us, so do not be heroes. Be clever and drop the heroics, since nothing is more dangerous than to play the hero. The depths want to keep you. They have not returned very many up to now, and therefore men fled from the depths and attacked them. What if the depths, due to this assault, now change themselves into death? But the depths indeed have changed themselves into death. Therefore when they awoke, they inflicted a thousandfold death. We cannot slay death, as we have already taken all life from it. If we still want to overcome death, then we must enliven it. Therefore on your journey, be sure to take golden cups full of the sweet drink of life, red wine, and give it to dead matter so that it can win life back. The dead matter will change into black serpents. Do not be frightened. The serpents will immediately put out the sun of your days, and a night with wonderful wool of the wisps will come over you. Take pains to waken the dead. Dig deep mines and throw in sacrificial gifts so that they reach the dead. Reflecting good heart upon evil, that is the way to the ascent. But before the ascent, everything is night and hell. What do you think of the essence of hell? Hell is when the depths come to you with all that you no longer are or are not yet capable of. Hell is when you are no longer to attain what you could attain. Hell is when you must think and feel and do everything that you know you do not want. Hell is when you know that your having to is also a wanting to and that you yourself are responsible for it. Hell is when you know that everything serious that you have planned with yourself is also laughable, that everything fine is also brutal, that everything good is also bad, that everything high is also low, that everything pleasant is also shameful. But the deepest hell is when you realize that hell also is no hell, but a cheerful heaven, not a heaven in itself, but in this respect the heaven, and in that respect the hell. That is the ambiguity of the God. He is born from dark ambiguity and rises to bright ambiguity. Unequivocalness is simplicity and leads to death, but ambiguity is the way of life. If the left foot does not move, then the right one does, and you move. The God wills this. You say, the Christian God is unequivocal. He is love. But what is more ambiguous than love? Love is the way of life, but your love is only on the way of life if you have a left and a right. Nothing is easier than to play at ambiguity, and nothing is more difficult than living ambiguity. He who plays is a child. His God is old and dies. He who lives is awakened. His God is young and goes on. He who plays hides from the inner death. He who lives feels the going onward in immortality. So leave the play to the players. Let fall what wants to fall. If you stop it, it will sweep you away. There is a true love that does not concern itself with neighbors. When the hero was slain and the meaning recognized in the absurdity, when all tension came rushing down from gravid clouds, when everything had become cowardly and looked to its own rescue, I became aware of the birth of the God opposing me. The God sank into my heart when I was confused by mockery and worship, by grief and laughter, by yes and no. The one arose from the melting together of the two. He was born as a child from my own human soul, which had conceived him with resistance like a virgin. Thus it corresponds to the image that the ancients have given to us. But when the mother, my soul, was pregnant with the God, I did not know it. It even seemed to me as if my soul herself was the God, although he lived only in her body. And thus the image of the ancients is fulfilled. I pursued my soul to kill the child in it, 
for I am also the worst enemy of my God. But I also recognize that my enmity is decided upon in the God. He is mockery and hate and anger, since this is also a way of life. I must say that the God could not come into being before the hero had been slain. The hero as we understand him has become an enemy of the God, since the hero is perfection. The gods envy the perfection of man, because perfection has no need of the gods. But since no one is perfect, we need the gods. The gods love perfection because it is the total way of life. But the gods are not with him who wishes to be perfect, because he is an imitation of perfection. Imitation was a way of life when men still needed the heroic prototype. The monkey's manner is a way of life for monkeys, and for man as long as he is like a monkey. Human apishness has lasted a terribly long time, but the time will come when a piece of that apishness will fall away from men. That will be a time of salvation and the dove, and the eternal fire and redemption will descend. Then there will no longer be a hero, and no one who can imitate him, because from that time henceforth all imitation is cursed. The new God laughs at imitation and discipleship. He needs no imitators and no pupils. He forces men through himself. The God is his own follower and man. He imitates himself. We think that there is singleness within us and communality outside us. Outside of us is the communal in relation to the external, while singleness refers to us. We are single if we are in ourselves, but communal in relation to what is outside us. But if we are outside of ourselves, then we are single and selfish in the communal. Our self suffers privation if we are outside ourselves, and thus it satisfies its need with communality. Consequently, communality is distorted into singleness. If we are in ourselves, we fulfill the need of the self. We prosper, and through this we can become aware of the needs of the communal and can fulfill them. If we set a God outside of ourselves, he tears us loose from the self, since the God is more powerful than we are. Our self falls into privation, but if the God moves into the self, he snatches us from what is outside us. We arrive at singleness in ourselves. So the God becomes communal in reference to what is outside us, but single in relation to us. No one has my God, but my God has everyone, including myself. The gods of all individual men always have all other men, including myself. So it is always only the one God, despite his multiplicity. You arrive at him in yourself and only through yourself seizing you. It seizes you in the advancement of your life. The hero must fall for the sake of our redemption, since he is the model and demands imitation. But the measure of imitation is fulfilled. We should become reconciled to solitude in ourselves and to the God outside of us. If we enter into the solitude, then the life of the God begins. If we are in ourselves, then the space around us is free, but filled by the God. Our relations to men go through this empty space and also through the God. But earlier it went through selfishness since we were outside ourselves. Therefore the Spirit foretold to me that the cold of outer space will spread across the earth. With this he showed me in an image that the God will step between men and drive every individual with the whip of icy cold to the warmth of his own monastic hearth. Because people were besides themselves, going into raptures like madmen. Selfish desire ultimately desires itself. You find yourself in your desire, so do not say that desire is vain. If you desire yourself, you produce the divine son in your embrace with yourself. Your desire is the father of the God. Yourself is the mother of the God. But the son is the new God, your master. If you embrace yourself, then it will appear to you as if the world has become cold and empty. The coming God moves into this emptiness. If you are in your solitude and all the space around you has become cold and unending, then you have moved far from men, and at the same time you have come near to them as never before. Selfish desire only apparently led you to men, but in reality it led you away from them and in the end to yourself, which to you and to others was the most remote. But now, if you are in solitude, your God leads you to the God of others, and through that to the true neighbor, to the neighbor of the self and others. If you are in yourself, you become aware of your incapacity. You will see how little capable you are of imitating the heroes and of being a hero yourself. So you will also no longer force others to become heroes. 
Like you, they suffer from incapacity. Incapacity, too, wants to live, but it will overthrow your gods. This concludes the readings of chapters 4 to 8 in the Red Book. These were incredibly interesting passages. I think it's key to note that uh, Carl Jung lived during the time of World War I, and a lot of his references have to do with things that were happening at the time and things that he actually had visions of World War I happening before it happened in all sorts of metaphorical images. And he makes a lot of references to metaphorical figures and figures of myth like Siegfried. Um, he also seems to speak about many biblical references talking about Christ and very specific events uh, like the death of Christ and the rebirth from the Bible. It's incredibly interesting how he ties all these together and then speaks words that are really kind of astonishing and kind of fearful and amazing to hear. It's hard to understand exactly what he's saying, and I think it's something for us to ponder over and think about what this descent into hell means for our own lives. Do we have a time in our life where we feel like we go into deep suffering and we things don't have meaning and we're seeking our way out? Perhaps these passages offer a way out, something to do with accepting the facts that we have incapacity, he talks about a lot. So an inability to do the things that we know we should that are good. But he stresses the point that that incapacity is something that we have to honor and also respect, that sometimes we can't be that hero in our lives. And if we try, especially when it comes to our internal feelings and our internal experience, we can be pushed into very terrible states. So I think this passage from him is incredibly interesting and i look forward to doing more readings of the red book thank you guys for listening to story hour it's been a pleasure reading from the red book one of my favorite and most enigmatic of all of carl jung's works if you guys are at all interested in carl jung um especially the theory of personality types that became the myers-briggs system of personalities like introvert extrovert feeling type thinking type sensation intuitive uh, go to holisticpsyche.com and check out the articles under persona these come straight from carl jung's works and are quite astonishing as well they allow you to find out what your personality type is and that allows you to understand yourself better and understand other people better especially a lot of the issues that we have in communicating with people or having what seems like fundamental differences from people actually can come from us being a completely different personality type, can come from the fact that we perceive the world completely and inherently different. And it's really interesting that Carl Jung went deep into the study through his clinical practice. Uh, he was a psychiatrist and he saw thousands of patients and he kind of devised this system that divided uh, people up into these basic characteristics. And I think it's really cool. And if you're into things like astrology, it's definitely very interesting to read the system that uh, is more laid on top of people. So it's not, you know, you're not bound or it's not written in stone that you are like this. It's more of an interpretation of who you are. So give that a check out. It's completely a free article. I love reading and writing about this kind of stuff. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Once again, that's holisticpsyche.com, H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C-P-S-Y-C-H-E.com.